I want to breathe! I want to breathe! 2020 was a year of racial reckoning in our country. killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery, among others, forced us to confront the painful and pervasive realities of racism and inequity in our country, too often in the realm of policing. No justice! No justice! No justice! We believe the policing should be a democratically accountable, professionalized public service, rather than a force. At the same time, we realize this is an incredibly challenging profession. Each day, the men and women in blue respond to difficult situations. There's crisis after crisis. Funding cutbacks force them to be frontline mental health workers. They handle other problems the community would rather not see. Police officers devote their lives to public safety, to community service. They keep the peace, and they must do it without error. One lapse, one mistake, and a person can die. Understanding that, too often, the evidence has demonstrated that our system of policing is broken and communities of color have bore the brunt of these systemic failures. Policing reform is hardly a new concept. That drive for change has faced many obstacles. Police unions have resisted change, and there's been an overall lack of transparency within the police community. Politicians have commandeered the discourse, making what could be a collective conversation about community safety into a partisan issue. And lastly, the sheer size of policing 700,000 officers spread over 18,000 agencies makes reform on a national scale seem especially challenging. But there has been progress. Illinois' governor signed a sweeping justice reform law, which included critical policy reforms. States like Maryland and Washington are moving forward with robust policing reform bills. The Biden administration has made criminal justice reform and racial justice top federal priorities. Those uh, eight minutes and 46 seconds that took George Floyd's life opened the eyes of millions of Americans and millions of people around all over the world. It was the knee on the neck of justice, and it wouldn't be forgotten. It stirred the conscience and uh, tens of millions of Americans. And in my view, it marked a turning point in this country's attitude toward racial justice. Across the nation, we're seeing new rules proposed at the federal, state, and local levels to ban chokeholds, eliminate no-knock warrants, and make officers more accountable for their actions in civil court. But is it enough? Will it work? And what should we do next? That is what we're going to discuss today. This is Deep Dive. I'm Laura Arnold. We'll kick off our conversation with Monica Bell, a sociologist and professor at Yale Law School. She is one of the nation's top thought leaders in policing. So, Monica, when we talk about policing and injustice, we mostly talk about incidents of police abuse. So the narrative seems to me to always be, this terrible thing happened, we need to change the way police interact with Black and brown communities, let's focus on building better relationships. You seem to come at it from a much deeper systemic standpoint. Tell us what you think are the root causes of this crisis in policing. So really, the causes are much more historical and have to do with the roles 
that policing has played in our society and particularly with respect to black and brown communities. All of this leads to a situation through which the police have been part of what I've called in some of my work legal estrangement. Your theories of legal estrangement, I think, have been really a breakthrough in how we all think about policy issues relating to policing. What are your thoughts as to where we start? No one ever asked when we have conversations about trust and police whether Black and brown communities actually should trust police. And instead, the whole idea of legal estrangement is reframing the question to ask how policing has been carried out in a way that actually sends those messages of exclusion, how policing, for example, in other work I've written about, promotes a racial residential segregation, how policing excludes people from the body politics, so you know, voting, also protests and other forms of political engagement. All of these are the right questions, in my opinion, and not so much how do we just get more black and brown people to trust their local officers. What is your view of how we should approach it? Should we work within the system? Can we work within the system? Or do you think the system is too broken to fix? I think we have to ask a different question, which is how can we reduce the harm of the current systems that we occupy while also working to build towards something much more robust? So, for example, I think pouring a lot more energy into alternatives to policing, so alternatives to traditional 911 systems, shoring up community level types of responses, transformative justice, all of that is the really micro level work of creating a new system, actually. But at the same time, we can, of course, work within our current system, understanding that the goal isn't actually to make it just, but the goal is to deal with crises right now so that we can have fewer and fewer George Floyds and Breonna Taylors. That work has to be part of the puzzle as well. And so I would encourage us to just have a different framework on our incremental work instead of just saying, are we working inside or outside the system? There are, of course, some very vocal and to date successful campaigns that have very specific policy objectives, banning chokeholds, requiring de-escalation, establishing use of force guidelines, banning shooting at moving vehicles, understanding that you need to address more systemic issues. Do you think those are a good start or would you start somewhere else? I would start somewhere else while I do recognize that those are valuable. They're valuable in the sense that if we ban chokeholds, then maybe there will be fewer people who die because of those types of interventions. But I do worry that pouring that type of energy into those types of reforms actually sucks up the energy we could be using to engage in more systemic change. And there's a problem of treating those, frankly, as victories, as opposed to emergency measures, given where we are right now with policing. Now, of course, at the other end of the spectrum are people who advocate for defunding the police. And of course, that actually means very different things to different people. Some people actually mean do not give one red cent to the police and others mean channel resources away from traditional law enforcement and more towards some of the things that you were referencing, ranging from treatment to alternatives to incarceration to alternatives to arrest. Do you think that the defund the police movement has been constructive? Do you think some of their proposals are realistic? 
what defund the police movement has done that has been really important is change the entire conversation about what reforms are on or off the table. So the defund movement, for example, has been pushing for a substantial reallocation from police departments to alternatives to social welfare, community organizations, and all of this. And even in places where there hasn't been any cuts to police funding, there have been some moves to invest more in those other branches of government, which used to be the radical far left thing. So essentially defund has changed the politics of reform to allow more space for the types of bold claims that people were making before the summer of 2020. I think the other key move that I just want to highlight that the defund movement has been successful in doing is changing the question about policing to ask, do the police actually make people more safe? That question is on the table now in a way that it was not before the summer of 2020. And I think that is also a really critical victory. I'd like to chat with you a bit about the law and especially common law, because historically, when law enforcement officers have gone before courts, as you well know frequently, these officers are either acquitted, not charged, not indicted, or in civil cases due to qualified immunity, they're not found liable for their actions. From a legal perspective, why do you think that is? So there is a lot of deference to police claims about a sense of dangerousness, first of all. So when a police officer says, I was worried my life was at risk, we don't have a norm right now in which we think, well, should you have thought your life was at risk? That's not a question that is asked. There's just deference to the police officer assessment of that reality. So that's one layer through which police tend to escape punity punishment for their actions in some of these types of cases. There's also a lot of investigation of those who are harmed. And we have a concept through which victims who were engaged in some sort of potentially criminal activity, their lives are less valuable to the court. So if you take that lack of credibility along with the increased credibility of police officers, that creates a situation which is really hard to punish officers through our traditional criminal legal metrics. I'll just briefly say about the civil side of things, of course, the elephant in the room there, as you mentioned, is qualified immunity. And the impetus behind that is we don't want to discourage people from carrying out their duties. And so qualified immunity tips the balance of protection toward that officer. You don't want somebody to hesitate for a moment to theoretically do the right thing because she thinks that she's going to be found civilly liable. Absolutely. But we have to question, I think, those dynamics because they place the burden of risk on the community. And that, I think, goes back to these deeper questions with respect to whether we want to defer to police and their assessments of what's safe or not. For the benefit of the audience, I'll take one moment to explain qualified immunity. This is a federal doctrine that's court-created. Theoretically, a person has a right to sue under the Civil Rights Act if he or she was wronged. Qualified immunity provides that unless that person meets very, very specific standards, the government officer is immune from lawsuit for conduct that occurred during his or her job. That's a very, very broad description of qualified immunity, but the crux of it is that the police officer cannot be held liable civilly. 
So he or she won't pay money out of pocket for a civil rights violation unless some very, very specific examples are met. This is qualified immunity at a theoretical level. But I wanted to examine this issue from the lens of someone who has lived experience in law enforcement, has witnessed policing, and the attempts to reform police practices from the inside of a police department. Carmen Best started as a B-cop in 1992, rose through the ranks, and after 26 years of service, she became the first Black woman to be chief of police in Seattle. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Carmen, let's dive right in. Is it time to rethink qualified immunity for police officers? It is so inherently important that people trust and believe that there is a fair and due process for everybody, that no one is you know, above the law, so to speak, and no one gets a pass because of the profession. And there's a lot of nuance to that. So I think it should be reviewed. I'm not in the camp of like, don't have anything because I've been the cop and I know what it's like to be out there. And I know that some of these decisions are split second decisions and there's a lot of things to consider. Officers, I think many of them feel like, you know, we're in these life and death situations. So they want some level of personal protection for their job. And I think that's reasonable. If you're a doctor, you know, you have some level of protection because of the inherent risk that's involved in your profession. My question to you is, do you think as a law enforcement officer, if qualified immunity went away, does that have an effect? Do you think that's important or is that, is it more of a message or does it actually have impact? In a time and in a climate where people are really, really scrutinizing or even questioning whether the police should exist at all in some quarters, this comes up and it feels to many as it's coming up in more of a punitive sense and a message sending sense. How many officers have actually had to rely on qualified immunity? Not that many right? It's the messaging around it and the message that it sends that resonates. But I do think it's worth the review because people have expressed they want it reviewed. They don't want people to feel as if they can do something and because they're a cop, there's no punitive action. Many reformers, and I know you include yourself in this group, feel that there's a moment now to affect change in policing There's a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of interest, and and a lot of momentum behind reform. So I want to ask you what you think is feasible, and maybe let's start at the federal level and then go to the department level, because I think that those are very, very different. All of those rules about chokeholds, qualified immunity, no-knock warrants, uses of force, deadly force, all of the policies around that and how that should be implemented and reviewed are incredibly important. And one aspect is just having the continuity about it. So people can't float from one place to the other and do things differently. But obviously the federal government can't monitor every cop in every city and every state and every town across the country. And then locally ensuring that the culture of the police department reflects the values of society and you know is fair and just. And that's gonna be different things for different places depending on the size of the department, the size of the community. But that has to happen. I really am a proponent of having some national standards that every agency has. So, for example, I was a chief in Seattle. We hadn't done no-knock warrants in 20 years. Yet that was a no-knock warrant where Breonna Taylor was killed. We banned chokeholds a couple of years ago. 
But, you know, their chokeholds are still used in other places. And some people consider it deadly force. Some people don't consider it at all. You see what I mean? There's no continuity. So you can go in Seattle and then everybody has a body-worn camera or Los Angeles or some other place. And another, you could drive a jurisdiction away where there were no body-worn cameras to even show what happened ahead of time. Your geography shouldn't determine the level of police service and the type to that degree. It should be equal across the board so that there are certain expectations that you know are met. We don't have that. Why do you think we're in this position today? An accountability crisis, hostility towards police, this bad place when it comes to police community relations. Why are we here? Police are sort of the tip of the spear. They're the ones that can take your freedom away and can ultimately have the authority to take your life in many instances. But the fact of the matter is, the issue is more of a societal issue that we have to really get to the root of why we have so much disparity, why people have animosity, why in many cases we're divided. If tomorrow we could erase any sort of disparity in the police department, would we have a better society? Well, a little bit better, but we still have those same issues in healthcare, in education, and in so many other areas that we really need to start peeling back the layers and get to the root causes. Because even if I fired an officer, which I have because I thought they had a racial bias or something, that person doesn't disappear from the planet. They are now delivering your mail or in your classroom or some other place of service. So I think the issue is that we're going to have to dig deeper than what we see, the outcome, and really get to the root causes of the divisiveness that we see. Because we recruit from the human race, from what we have available. So it's beyond just the profession. It really is, I think, much deeper. One of my fears is that one of the things that we have happen is that we have these moments, like you talked about in time, where there's a Rodney King or Ferguson or George Floyd, and there's a momentum and a push. And then you start looking at, okay, what, what happened? And then it feels like not much. And even now, it was like, okay, we had George Floyd, we had... Days and days and days of protests. We had Mm -hmm. all of this stuff. I really would like to be able to look back and say all of that strife and all of that energy, global energy around this issue. If a year from now, it's all the same. Do you know what I mean? I think that's a risk in criminal justice reform in general. I think if you see a lot of the momentum or lack of momentum or perceived momentum in a lot of states, the real question is, is that going to translate into anything? Are things going to change? And there's so much that can be done. So like, how do you channel the energy to do something now before people move on to the next thing? I think it's really hard, but I'm very hopeful. We're all very hopeful here. Me too. (laughs) We know the headlines of what needs to happen, but this isn't the first time that leaders have tried to reform police practices. Six years ago, a wave of brutal incidents sparked outrage and action. Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, Michael Brown, Laquan McDonald, the Obama administration created a high-profile commission on 21st century policing. The Department of Justice investigated police practices in numerous cities, resulting in consent decrees that found a range of police abuses. We now have a new president and a new administration, one that has been vocal in its support for criminal justice reform. You're here in Houston to meet with George Floyd's family. What did you say to his family? His little daughter was there. The one who said, Daddy's going to change the world. I think her daddy is going to change the world. 
I think what's happened here is one of those great inflection points in American history, for real, in terms of civil liberties, civil rights, and, and just treating people with dignity. If you are in the room with President Biden, what do you recommend to be the two, three, five, however many things that you think are critical to do right now, at this moment, so that the year 2021 can be a year where we started a constructive conversation and we actually implemented reforms that will make a difference? Yeah, so that's a really great question. I think too often the reform conversation is focused on specific policies that are not completely lacking value, but are not laying the groundwork for systemic change. So I think the three things I would really focus on in the Biden administration is first to build out alternatives to policing. So making long-term investments in public well-being with safety is just one part of that. I think number two is systemic evaluation of those alternatives. So grants for community co-design of policies and research on these alternatives in order to kind of lay this long-term groundwork for a broader public safety agenda. And then number three, I think is really important is to know that it can't just be the Department of Justice that does police reform. So you have to have systemic approaches across agencies to embed police reform, for example, into the work of HUD, you know, where police are really involved in the construction of neighborhoods. So multiple agencies need to be involved with that. Specific to HUD, for example, including policing as part of what it means to affirmatively further fair housing, which is something I've written about, is also something I would suggest as a top priority to the Biden administration. Certainly the last part of your comment alludes to something that I think all of us in criminal justice reform are hoping, which is to start a conversation of what are we trying to accomplish in the first place? Who are we trying to take care of? What are we trying to establish as a rubric to not only keep people safe, but to treat everyone with dignity and respect? And that's certainly a longer conversation, but I very much appreciate your insights into the systemic causes of dysfunction, and also all of your work in trying to move this conversation forward. Thank you so much for all that you do for criminal justice reform, Monica. Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to chat. That was Chief Carmen Best and Professor Monica Bell. For more about policing reform, the structural barriers impeding change, and evidence-based solutions worth pursuing, check out Arnold Ventures at www.arnoldventures.org. This has been Deep Dive, a production of Arnold Ventures, where we are dedicated to tackling some of the most pressing problems in the United States. I'm Laura Arnold. Thank you for listening.